the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So we're going to stop mid-thought right there, and we'll hopefully come back and finish the chapter in a moment. Papa Fred, would you pray for our time together? Father, as I uh, just contemplate this chapter, um, uh, it, it really builds on chapter 7. In fact, it builds on everything that has been said before uh, up to now. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that, that we can sit here and um, teach from chapter 8 that we have a high priest, that we have an intercessor, that we have a mediator, uh, not like... Um, the earthly high priest who uh, had to repeatedly uh, over and over and over again offer sacrifices. But one time uh, he offered himself and sat down uh, at the right hand of God. And Father, I'm grateful just for the opportunity to open this book tonight and, and just pray for your spirit to anoint us, be with us, and uh, just excited uh, just to um, be in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as we jump in tonight, if you were here last week, we covered the, <laughs> the Melchizedek uh, hour, hour and ten minutes that we did last week on Melchizedek. There was a lot of work to work through all of that, and now the payoff is really coming here as you reach the end of seven and eight. So, I, I want to hear from you guys. Uh, just some comforting things as we get started are we needed someone who was ultimately going to be greater than Adam. In chapter 2, hints at that, that Jesus was able to subdue creation in a way Adam would have failed. So, we need a greater than Adam. We need a greater than Abraham. 
We need a greater than Aaron and Levi and the whole Old Testament Levitical priesthood. We need something better than animal sacrifices and animal blood offered daily and then annually, depending on what uh, occasion it was. We need priests who don't just die but live forever. We need a priest who can pray for us all day, every day, for, for, for eternity and never cease and never die and never fail and never sin. We need a priest who has never sinned. And so on and on, you, you see this building of all that we need. And then look at 8.1. This is just incredible. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have them. That is awesome. We have such a high priest. So, we need a priest who does the impossible a hundred times over. What, find me a priest who's never sinned. Just go look. Let's go find a priest who's never sinned. Uh, you don't have to look for the really bad ones. Uh, you just look for any of them. And you see sin, you see flaw, you see evil. Uh, find a sacrifice that's better than the animals. And on and on, the Old Testament, we're searching for this ultimate answer. And then he, the author of Hebrews, after all this theology, says, the point in what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest. So just what are some comforting thoughts as we kind of open this up and think about these truths? Yeah, I, I guess I can just start with it. I mean, I was thinking that exact same thing. It, it sh this should lead to worship, like the, the density of chapter 7 and all that you have to work through and all that you and Tyler work through, all that heavy stuff should lead us to 8-1, should cause us to burst forth with worship and praise. We have such a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So there should be worship going on in us. It should be hugely encouraging to see that. And I love that it says in verse 1, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He's seated. I just love that fact that he's seated. One, one pastor said this. He said, Jesus is seated. His posture points to his completed work. It is the physical expression of his triumphant cry from the cross. It is finished. Because in his person, he brought finite man and infinite God. Together, he bore our sins in a single sacrifice. He says, in contrast, no earthly Levitical priest ever sat down, certainly not in the Holy of Holies. They stood daily at the altar because their sacrifices could never take away sin, but Jesus has sat down. I mean, just that should be amazing. It points back to his cry on the cross, it is finished. And then sort of this, the second thing, I'll just encouraging part from verse 1 that, that I took, which one commentator mentioned, because it mentions at the end of verse 1, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. This, this one guy just said, uh, he talked about the throne. He said the Hebrews also mentions the throne of grace. It's the same throne, but it's also the throne of grace, which we can now boldly come to this throne. So he was just taking 8-1 as also an encouragement to pray. Like, we, we can boldly come to this throne, the throne of majesty, the throne of grace. We, we, it's just an encouragement to pray, and just we need the encouragement to pray. Fred was just saying studying Hebrews has made him want to pray more, and certainly that should be one of the results of, of studying Hebrews. And just, I, I know I've talked about this before with, with our son, who whenever he's in trouble or if he's suffering, especially at night going to bed, he often says my name. Like, that's what he says. He says, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And what I see in that is I see this is how I should be. And this is how, if we knew, like one, one guy said, if we know the king of the land as, as our personal friend, he said, when you were in, if you were in trouble, you would never turn away from the king who is your friend. You would run towards him. How much more should we be running to the throne of grace to find help, to find mercy in times of need? So those are just a couple of encouraging things. You know, it's, it's been a, um, a revelation to me that, that, I mean, I knew that Jesus was in heaven, you know, I accepted that, and, but Hebrews just simply reinforces where he is in heaven, what he's doing. He's got this mediatorial role, uh, this intercessory role, 
and he, you know, he's, he's completed atonement one time for our sins. But just think, it's been 2,000 years since he ascended. And, and he has all the people that's lived, that have lived for these 2,000 years, including us, need an intercessor. We need someone to pray to. And he had, that's part of his job description now at the right hand of God. I'm sure there, there are many others that we don't understand. But it's just refreshed to me the, the, that I have access to this throne. Uh, and I should approach it boldly in, in my hour of need like your son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have the empty cross, we have the empty tomb, and we have the occupied throne, and we have Jesus seated, which is all the indications that he has completed the task. It is finished on the cross, he leaves the tomb, he ascends, he, seats, he sits down at the, at the Father's right hand, proving that he's got no more work to do as far as atonement goes. He is seated, and I think it was Spurgeon who said, if you think, you know the old diagram of you've got a cliff on one side? And you got a cliff on the other side, and you've got the cross going between, which is a great diagram. Uh, and when you think about that, Spurgeon said, think about if the cross is a bridge that, you know, gets us there. I mean, you almost think about this middle aisle. It's like the, the bridge right across, and you got this side, and you got that side, and there's no way you can jump. There's no way you can climb across, but you can easily walk across by what Christ has done. And Spurgeon said, think about how incredibly strong this bridge must be when you look back in world history and see the kind of sinners whose weight it has borne. Like, you, you look at Saul of Tarsus killing Christians, and he, he was easily able to make it across that bridge. And you look back at, at, at famous believers who were drunken and were in parties, and they were converted, people that we know, people that you, maybe that's been you, maybe that's been in my life, where there's been major sin at a point, and the Lord has rescued us from that. But looking at that, the work is finished. Jesus is sitting. We don't have to do any work to make this happen. All we have to do is accept by faith what Christ has done, and He can bear up the weight of the greatest of sinners. That's what Paul, when Paul says, he had mercy on me, that in me the worst of sinners, uh, he might show his unbelievable patience and love and grace to all others who will trust in him. In other words, if the cross could hold me up, if God's patience could endure me when I was violently attacking Christians, then everyone else should rest at ease, that the cross can also support their weight of sin, and that Jesus' finished work is signaled in that by his sitting at the, at the right hand of the throne of God. I, I love that God is not called God here. He's not called Father. He's not called Lord. He's called the Majesty, which is just awesome. That is a phenomenal title for God. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. I mean, just we don't have a clue. I mean, we have moments maybe as believers where we get a little glimpse of what it's like. You know, you're reading maybe Revelation 4 and 5, and you get that, that throne room, and you, the, the, you know, the glassy sea, and all the angels, and, the, and maybe you have these moments where the your eyes of your heart are opened, and you can sort of see dimly for a moment, and you're probably over, overcome by the sense of your sin. But we, we don't have a clue of, of the kind of majesty and glory that is going on right now in God's throne room at this moment with myriads and myriads of angels praising Him uh, at this very moment, round the clock, all the time. Majesty means sovereign. And, and in uh, chapter 1, he also says in verse 3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high there, and he says, uh, the majesty in heaven. We don't have very many sovereigns anymore. I mean, I know some kings and queens would probably like to think they're sovereign. <laughs> but, but that used to meant you had absolute authority, control, power, and so on. But our God does. And that's the amazing thing. And, and Jesus is there at his right hand. Uh, co-anchoring the throne, if you must. Mm-hmm. 
Which is just piggyback, just real quick on that. The more we see the majesty of God, we, we, we talked about this before, but the, the more I see the majesty of God, the more I'm going to appreciate the sacrifice of Christ because he has paid. But when we see the bigness of the other side, the bigness of what we've sinned against, that God, like even just now when you're saying that, I feel like I am growing just a little bit in seeing the, in a greater way the majesty of God, just thinking about the, the throne room of God. And we've sinned against this God who's been nothing but good to us. And he, we deserve nothing but wrath at his hand. And yet he sent his son. So it just it elevates the cross when we see the majesty of God lifted up like, like you're saying there. So just even right there, I'm, I'm getting a bigger, help, more helpful picture of, of, the, of the atonement we have in Christ because of the majesty of God. That's great. So let, let's keep going. Verse 2. <clears throat> so he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven in a, mini, uh, excuse me, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Now, just pause here. He's running through a lot of things quickly. One of the things that the author sees the priest's job as being is providing something to offer before God. And you know this, we've talked about this, that those daily sacrifices, those yearly sacrifices were intended to maintain access to God. Uh, so remember, we, I know we know this, but let's just refresh ourselves. So you have, whether it's in the wilderness or when they finally move into the promised land, you have the tabernacle and later the temple where God's uh, glory dwells in a unique way in the Holy of Holies. And then that is, you know, got the big curtain there, so you, you don't go in there except the high priest once a year, only exactly as required to do exactly what he's supposed to do with over the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, sprinkling the blood. But outside of that, you have the holy place, you know, you have the lampstands, and you have the bread, and we'll get into all this uh, hopefully in chapters 9 and 10. And all these things, we're being told, are simply to tell us something about the reality of God's dwelling in heaven and, and what that is like. And he's saying, let's again compare the two. On earth, you're dealing with physical objects, you're dealing with animal blood, you're dealing with all these kinds of things. Jesus does not serve in the earthly temple. He would not even be qualified in one sense. He's not a Levite. He doesn't work in the earthly temple. That's why it says, uh, verse 4, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. If, if he was working in the earthly tabernacle, there, there isn't really a place for that. Jesus is working in the superior uh, presence of God, the dwelling of God, and he is there in God's real presence that the tabernacle and the temple were simply a type or a shadow of. They were simply pointing to the, the real intimate presence with God that Jesus gives us access to. So thoughts on this? Fred? Well, this shadow, uh, is that a, um, directed towards Plato's shadows perhaps? Mm -hmm. Um, Plato had an allegory, or he and uh, Aristotle, I guess it was, or it was it Socrates, Plato. Socrates, Plato, Plato, where, where the prisoners were chained, uh, there was a fire behind them, and then there were, sh and then as, as objects would pass behind them, they would see the shadows on the wall. So that they didn't see the reality; they saw shadows, and so Hebrews, I think, picks up on this shadow language, and because it's like a foretaste or a foretelling or a prototype of something to come. And so this temple is, I mean, even Moses says when he erected the tent, he was instructed by God. And you remember, I was teaching, I remember teaching Exodus years ago, in fact, 25 years ago to a bunch of guys, and I lost them 
in the, in the chapters on the tabernacle <laughs> construction because it's very speci specific, as you remember. So, <laughs> but uh, I, I think this is uh, alluding to Plato in the shadow. This is a, a, a picture of or a shadow of something to come in the heavenly places. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Just to pick up on, on the shadow thing, I, I heard this from Piper. I thought it was so good. I don't, I don't know if, if you heard this, but in his sermon, he mentioned this about the shadow, and he told this story, which he said, at the early service, there was a bunch of kids, so he wanted to address the kids in the room, and he said, he told these kids this story. He said, imagine you're with your mom, he said, at the grocery store, you're holding your mom's hand, and you feel secure, and he said, all of a sudden, your mom lets go of your hand for just a few seconds, and he said, you're just kind of looking around, and he said, then you turn around, and your mom is gone. And you're like, uh-oh, and you said you look every which way, and all you see is cereal. He said, there's cereal everywhere on the aisle, but your mother's not there anywhere. And you, you start to panic. There's this lump in your throat. Tears are starting to fill your eyes. You run to the end of the aisle, and then you see a shadow on the floor. And he said, the shadow looks just like your mom's shadow. And he said, it begins to fill you with hope and joy. And then he said, he asked this question to the kids. He says, uh, now, which is better, the shadow on the ground that makes you feel so much hope that mommy must be right around the corner, or mommy stepping around the corner. All the kids in the service said, mommy's better. And he said they answered the right, they answered correctly. And he said, Christmas is Jesus stepping around the corner. I just thought it was so wow. good, so helpful. Jesus is stepping around the corner so much better than the shadow on the ground. They are all pointing to Jesus. And uh, Lloyd-Jones just said, like, the blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient, but they have a great function. They pointed forward to a blood that would be enough. So it just, I just thought that was a helpful illustration on the shadow. Oh, that's excellent. And when you think about, this is not exactly the same, but in a, in a movie or a book, you have foreshadowing, right? Where a character does or says something early on, and it tells you what's going to happen later in a greater way, right? There's usually a hint. And then at least a good writer will include things early on that signal the future. And the Old Testament is just packed with types and shadows, and these things are designed by God to prepare us for the true coming one. And so, the one who is like so many things, but so much better. That's the whole book of Hebrews. He's, he's like Moses, but way better. He's like the tabernacle, but he's the true dwelling place of God. Uh, if you want to go to the true temple, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it up, referring not to the temple, but to his body, the true temple. And so, th there are so many of these things that are preparatory and pointing us to Jesus. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about you know, why didn't Jesus, why wasn't Jesus born instead of Cain in Genesis 4? Because wouldn't that have saved a lot of trouble? Adam and Eve are like, oh, they're going to send a serpent crusher. This will be great. They, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It could be the serpent crusher gives birth. It's Jesus. This is great. And Jesus just, you know, goes and defeats Satan. And that would have been a pretty short Bible too, right? It would be like Genesis 5, <laughs> new heavens and new earth, and it would be over. So why, why not Jesus show up in Genesis 4? I think, I really do think Eve is expecting the serpent crusher when Cain is born, and he's not. He's, he's a little serpent himself, okay? Cain, not, not that he's the seed of the serpent, uh, according to the rest of Scripture, uh, who, who then persecutes the seed of the woman, Abel. We're getting off track, aren't we? Here's the point. Uh, why so much time? Why thousands of years? I mean, we're talking thousands of years go by, and, you know, 70, almost, I think it's 76% of our Bible goes by, and Jesus hasn't shown up yet. It's like, what? I mean, why would you, why would three-fourths of the Bible be preparatory, waiting, anticipating? I mean, centuries, millennia, why? And, and the answer is, there's a lot of answers. One is to give you and I categories to understand the beauty of Jesus when He comes around the corner. So, so if, if in Genesis 4, instead of Cain, you know, 
Eve ends up having the virgin birth. Jesus is born, and Jesus is born, and, and, and you know, an angel shows up and says, hey, uh, He is the true temple. Adam and Eve would be like, uh, okay. Uh, he what is, is a temple? Yeah, what's a temple? He's the true son of David. David, is that one of our distant sons? Yes, he is. Okay, well, I don't know what David's like. Uh, he is the true and better sacrifice. Well, I mean, it's true Cain and Abel understood something of sacrifices, but if you went before that, they wouldn't even know that. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Passover Lamb. He's the true Exodus. He's the true Moses. He's the true King, the true priest, the true prophet, the true bread, the true light, the true, the true, the true. He's the true rest. Rest from what? Uh, he's the true defeater of our enemies. What enemies are we talking about? I mean, we, we, we didn't have almost the taste buds to even know what we needed. We didn't even have the capacity and the categories to know what we needed. If Jesus showed up in Genesis 4, we would not have valued and appreciated Him as much as if you let things go. And I, I've told this before, but forgive me if you've heard this. If you're a coach and you have your, you know, your, your quarterback and he's playing and it's just he's playing horribly and the whole game, you know, you're three quarters in and you're just, getting, you're just getting destroyed by the other team. You've scored nothing. You've given up points over and over. He's thrown interceptions. He throws more, you know, touchdowns for the other team, you know, those plays. <laughs> Yay, I've scored. I've gotten three touchdowns for the other team as the quarterback. I'm going to go into the locker room and never come out. So if that's happening and you, you make it into the fourth quarter, and let's say that there's just the time is running low and you're down by 30 some odd points, it's just, it's over. And you got this new quarterback, you haven't really, you don't really know much about him, and you say, well, what can we, we got nothing to lose, let's put this guy in. And imagine the new quarterback that no one knows who he is, he shows up, and in the last few minutes of play, somehow, almost miraculously, ends up scoring so many points that, that you end up winning in the last 10 minutes of play. Well, you would say, that shows you the value of that player more than if he'd been in the whole game, Right? Because if he'd been in the whole game, it was an even match, and he, he could have won. But if he shows up, and he's way behind, and he's got to do a lot of catching up to do that, that shows the value of his, the skill of him all the more. Jesus comes several thousand years late into the game. The, the world is cursed and sin-soaked, and the flood didn't even fix the problem. And even the people of God can't stop worshiping Baal and Asherah, and they can't stop bowing down to a golden calf or worshiping the snake, right, on Moses' pole that they end up worshiping later. It's like, guys, that's not the point of the snake on the pole. And so then finally Jesus shows up in the midst of Roman oppression, Israel rebellion, Pharisees and Sadducees and Zealots. Nobody knows what to do. No one knows how to fix the problem. And Jesus in 30, you know, something years, 33 years, he, he's able to fix the entire problem, lives a sinful, sinless life. Wow, heresy. Sinless life. Let's mark that from the record. And then he's able to absorb the sin of every person who's ever trusted in him before and after in, you know, six hours on a cross, and then he's resurrected three days later. Jesus is able to do what nobody else could have ever imagined doing. And now, because the, the Father sent till the right time, remember, at the right time God sent the Son into the world, uh, that allows us to grasp with multifaceted glory of what Jesus is doing. He's doing things that we would not have understand if He came earlier. And God gave us the time to have that Old Testament to help us prepare the way and understand and appreciate what Jesus was going to do. Th thoughts on that? Well, can I throw a question back at you just real quick on, on this? Because I know that you see, like, I'm thinking like seeing the shadows. When we're reading the Old Testament, we start seeing the shadows, and we know that this is pointing forward to Jesus. Like, how does, how does that transform maybe reading the Old Testament? Like, how should we read the Old Testament in that sense? Like, seeing the shadow, like the, the snake, or whatever, when, when that's like clear, but certainly we should be reading that in light of Jesus is coming around the corner. It would sort of transform it. Like, in your own life, how has that been, maybe, or just… Yeah. 
I mean, Scott's, if y'all heard the confession where Scott did Genesis 22 a couple weeks ago, that would be an example of, of reading the Old Testament with Jesus in view. Uh, it's hard not to see Jesus in that story. Uh, I mean, honestly, if you, if you have a friend who is Orthodox Jewish, uh, in, a, in a very loving way, just pointing to their, you know, what they would say is their Hebrew Bible, going into their, the Old Testament and pointing out these places where Jesus is so obviously uh, there in shadow form. I mean, you just take Abraham and Isaac. You have the miraculously born, right, Isaac, remember they're old? Miraculously born, child of promise, who puts wood on his back, goes up a mountain in what ends up being Jerusalem, goes up a mountain in Jerusalem, and his father lays him on the wood, picks up the, the, the judgment, and is about to execute him, and God stops him and says, I will provide a way. I will, the Lord will provide. And there's a ram caught in the thicket, crowned with thorns, killed in the place of Isaac. When, when, I'm not sure everyone reading that at first would have understand what all was going on there, but when Jesus shows up and does what He does, here's the truly miraculously born, virgin born, child of promise, waited for a lot longer than Isaac. And he goes up a hill right next to Mount Moriah, right, right there, and he goes up Golgotha, and he's got, he's got wood on his back, and he's crucified, and this time the knife does not stop. I mean, that's just one, and there are so many examples of that kind of thing um, that, that you can look at. I won't go on and on, but 1 Corinthians 10, uh, we went through it on a Tuesday night months ago. Um, 1 Corinthians 10 is great because Paul says the wilderness generation he uses the word types twice, it's translated examples. What happened to them happened as types for us today on whom the end of the ages has come. So when we study the wilderness generation, Paul clearly says they are a type of what we are going through in the church age. And it doesn't mean everything is exactly the same between the two. You have to translate and understand that. But Paul clearly sees major connections between the exodus, the wilderness, and the promised land to the Christian life today. So that, that's just… I was Fred. thinking it was Scott's question too about… Um, the covenants, of course, you were talking about the Abrahamic covenant, but I was looking at the covenants in conjunction with this chapter, and, you know, you had the Adamic, and then Noah, Noetic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic covenant. Each of those covenants tell a story. Each of those covenants have a message for us to look forward, to anticipate, to, uh, and or a shadow. Mm -hmm. Like in the Davidic covenant, obviously, Jesus is the son of David and the son of God. Yes. So... I mean, that's, you can't unhitch, as we've talked about it before, the Old Testament from the New Testament. Yeah. It's like opening a book and reading the first couple of pages and then looking, going to the ending. Right. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work. Yeah, that's what, I think somebody said, uh, if you have a five-act play, are, are plays sometimes in five acts? I know nothing about plays. Let's just say five-act play, four-act, I don't know how many acts. If, let's just say you have a five-act play. The first three acts, at least, are Old Testament, if you're going to use this kind of analogy, and you got the last two acts are more New Testament. Um, we tend to want to spend all our time in Acts 4 and 5. Now, I get why. We're, we're in the New Covenant. I get we want to spend a lot of time in the New Testament, and we should, but it's like to jump in at Act 4, we're not going to understand where all the characters have come from, what all is going on. Like when, when the blind man says, Son of David, have mercy on me, we better know something about First and Second Samuel, right? I mean, otherwise… Son of David, have mercy on me means nothing to me. I guess that was the guy who killed Goliath. Why do I need to know about that? But you've got to know the, Dave, the Davidic covenant Absolutely. explains Jesus so well. And that's why, you know, Matthew's gospel starts with a genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What's going on there? We better understand the promise, the covenant with Abraham, seed of Abraham, and the 
promise to David, the seed of David, always reigning on the throne, bringing the blessings God promised to the seed of Abraham to the nations. Well, who's that? This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of, Ab- the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is saying when you start Act 4 with the beginning of the New Testament, you better have some awareness of Samuel and the, 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 the appropriate Psalms that, that are giving us that. Now, listen, we can still be saved only knowing John 3.16. Right? We don't, you don't have to know all the Bible to, to be saved by John 3.16. But as believers, as we grow, we want to be constantly reaching back. And, and, and the Old Testament helps make the New Testament more three-dimensional in what it's really getting at and what it's really saying. When John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, he has a whole theology of, of lambs being killed for people that's in his mind as he points to, to Jesus. Other thoughts on that from anybody? I'm good. Okay. Let's keep going. So, uh, we are… Well, I'll start back in verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, and you can see it quotes Exodus 25. See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain, on Mount Sinai. Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that covenant, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And then He goes on. Now, just pause here. Amazing. The covenant Jesus brings is a better covenant with better promises. Um, what, what, I, we haven't even prepared whether I'm going to ask you all this, but what, what are some of these better promises? What are some of the things that are promised in the new covenant that are not, that are not ultimately to be found in that old covenant? Our hearts are going to be changed. This, his Spirit, He'll put His Spirit in our hearts. I mean, take out that heart of uh, flesh and give us a stone, uh, give us a heart of flesh so he can mold it and meld it and make it. So the transformation of the people? Regeneration. Yes. Things we've already talked about. I mean, the, the final sacrifice, which is better than the animals in the old covenant. The fact that the priest finishes his job, which is better, because in the old covenant they were always standing, never finished. And they were dying too. Yes, and they would have to die and be replaced. Jesus has resurrection life, never to die again. He's able to pray forever and always for those who draw near to Him, whereas the earthly priests could not do that. So, so it's better. Now, we're going to get into some more detail of why it's better. Some of you know this, but this is the longest quotation of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Uh, and we'll, we'll have to go back to Jeremiah a little bit to look at this, but we'll go ahead and read through it. Uh, Papa, could you read, uh, do you have in front of you verses 8 through the end of the chapter? Sure. Uh, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. On the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed them no concern for them, declares the Lord." For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor 
and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Thank you, Fred. And, um, and what, verse 13, in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So, here's the point. You, you know, the author of Hebrews keeps doing this. I love this. He keeps going back and saying, what I'm telling you is not something I made up. I'm getting this from the Old Testament. Remember, he did this with the rest, the rest theme, how it's greater than just the promised land in Psalm 95, chapter 4. And he did that earlier with, um, scratching my head here, with um, Melchizedek. He talked about how this was in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, and in Genesis. And now he does it again. He goes, listen, guys, when I say we need a whole… Re we need to restructure uh, the people of God. There's going to be a new, a new covenant. There's going to be a new constitution of this. I'm not making this up. You guys know Jeremiah, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, we know Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah 31 uh, speaks so clearly that there's going to be a new covenant. And he's going to get into some of the things that make the new covenant different. You guys want to jump in on this part? I mean, I can, I can jump in at the beginning in terms of uh, the old covenant written on tablets of stone. It didn't, it didn't have the power to transform the people, but the, the new covenant is sort of written on our hearts, and it has the power to transform us. And I thought this, there, there was an illustration that this one pastor used that I thought was fantastic. He told this story about this doctor, Dr. Christian Bernard, who was the first surgeon ever to perform heart transplant. a heart transplant. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he had done, I guess, several successful heart Fred's transplants. friend from childhood, apparently. <laughs> I knew he, Moses, too. <laughs> he had done several successful heart uh, surgeries, like heart replacement surgeries, and he did one on, on this other guy who was a doctor as well, and he performed the successful surgery. Several <laughs> weeks later, he's talking to this guy, and he just happened to say, you know, would you like to see your old heart? And the guy was like, you're like, you, you, you kidding? You have it? You kept it? He's like, yeah. Was, so a few days later, they went, they went to the hospital. He went up to this room. He went to the cupboard. He reached down. He opened this jar, and he, he, helped, he handed it to this guy. He oh said the guy goodness. was speechless. Like, he couldn't speak. He just he stared at it for a while. Couldn't speak, but he's a doctor. Then he started asking a bunch of technical questions about the surgery. And then at the very end, he said, so that's the heart that caused me so many problems. And he, he put it down. And he, he walked away. Like he said, never to come back to it again. I thought, this is a picture of, of the new covenant. This is a picture of rebirth. Like, wow. he takes out the heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. And I was just thinking about us. Uh, we both grew up in a wonderful Christian home, hearing the gospel regularly, but neither one of us like the Bible. We were bored by the Bible, both of us. I mean, I never wanted to read the Bible. You never wanted to read the Bible. And then what happened? God did this amazing word by His grace. He takes out this heart of stone, puts in this heart of flesh, gives us a love for the Word of God. And I, I, I've thought about this on times doing book club. I'll be driving over there and thinking about the grace of God. Like, how did God take me from not liking the Bible? Now I'm going to lead a discussion about the Bible. Here we are talking about the Bible, the Bible we didn't like. We're bored to death by it. Now we, we love the Bible. We're talking about the Bible, preaching about the Bible. Well, it's because God's done this incredible work. It's part of the new covenant. He actually writes the law in our hearts so we desire it. We have the power to, to obey Him and love Him. And so that's just one thing to get rolling. And we can't do that ourselves. That's right. And we can try, try, try to be a better me. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... Uh, I mean, I, I think that if you're not born again, even if you would call yourself a Christian, if you're not born again, you almost… I think I thought this way some… Um, if someone is really passionate about the Bible, you almost assume the only pleasure they could be getting out of that is a kind of Pharisee pleasure. 
It's like, what else could drive you to read something so boring and tedious and spend hours doing it? The, the only motive must be to show off something or, to, you know, to show that you've got some kind of knowledge or something. And when I was 16 and you were 20, and we were, it was close to this, it was within six months of each other. Uh, when, when I was 16, I'm, I'm going into my 11th grade year of high school, and I, I remember coming home uh, early, it was September, early September 2003, probably September 1st, September 2nd, September 3rd, September, I still remember this, it's that vivid to me. I remember taking half hour, 45 minute walks in my parents' neighborhood, and the whole time I was just talking to God about things going on in my little high school life, you know? And, and I was, and I, and I was concerned about some things, and I just remember pouring out my heart to God, taking these 30 minute, 40 minute walks, and to me, I thought… I. I didn't quite know what was happening, but I had this longing to talk to him and like to actually share what was really going on in my life with God. That was not something that marked my life before that. I prayed out of duty in a church service, or if we had to take communion, I was always a little scared of communion, and when I was not really a Christian, I thought I was, and so I would, I would pray and things. But this was praying for the sheer delight of it just wanting to talk to him. And then in the same semester, it was Philippians, the book we're in now as a church. I just looked at my Bible, my 16-year-old Bible. It's all messed up now, my, my little 1984 NIV. And I opened it up, and, and I looked at it. Just it's, Philippians is covered in ink, like red ink and blue ink and black ink. And I got little funny little notes on the sides of the page. And I, should, I can remember, this is probably October, this is probably November of 2003, late in that semester, I remember reading Philippians repeatedly and, and being moved, being stirred by it. And, and just, I couldn't get enough of it. That, that is the mark of a new heart, and, and that's not something I gave myself. If you would have seen me before that, and even as a Christian struggling since then, th there was nothing in me that even had that desire. I read the Bible out of sheer duty before that if I had to. But the idea that you could delight in God's Word, soak it in, love it. I would want to get home from school some days, and, and, and I, I would, I mean, instead of wanting to go waste my time, which is what I did all the time, I, would, I can remember, I would get instant coffee, a blight on humanity wow, I just had a moment. Like, you know, like the 90 seconds in the microwave and you pour that in there and you're like, so Yuck. good, good to the last drop. And so I would take that, I would, I would get my instant coffee, this is around like 3.30 in the afternoon or whatever, I don't know why I was drinking coffee then. I would go upstairs, I would shut my door in my room, I can remember I had Matthew Henry's commentary, which you gave me, I had Matthew Henry's huge one-volume commentary in like size four font. And I would, I, would, I remember opening up to Nehemiah, because I, I still, and I remember I was reading Nehemiah and I was reading Matthew Henry, I was going back and forth. and and. It was like one of my favorite parts of the day was doing that. Those are things that were not happening in my life before it, and I couldn't have even willed to do that. I couldn't have willed to want to do that. And those are evidences, and, and, and you, you know what this is like, don't you? Like, like to, to have that change happen where suddenly you want to go to God in prayer, you want to open His Word because you're, you can't live without it. It's like I, my joy meter has gone down to negative 400, okay? I, I am grumpy, I am moody, I am irritable, and you read Scripture, and not every time like magic, but very frequently, the Spirit works and stirs in our heart because there has been a heart transplant. If you look at verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God comes in and, you know, it's not the Ten Commandments written over there that Moses is about to throw on the ground because we're worshiping, you know, a golden calf. It's not written on stone. God writes the law on the affections of the heart, on the loves of your heart, so that they correspond with our deeper desires in, in Christ. Fred? Well, remember when Moses gave them the law, they said, we'll keep the law. We'll keep the law. Yes. Probably 
Honestly, that was their intention. They were not capable. And that was one of the, that's one of the weaknesses of the old covenant. They couldn't do it. I, I don't want to depart from um, Jeremiah, but also here, 26 and 27, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Again, back-to-back bookends there, same thought, a heart change. Yes, which, I mean, which the only way you can explain it is the grace of God. I mean, that's the only possible explanation for why we're up here teaching the Bible. I mean, I think about dad, like he had no Christian upbringing at all. And at 18 years old, what happens? He's converted and he, he couldn't get enough of the Bible. Like he's just reading the Bible for whatever, seven times, the New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs, he just read it seven times in two weeks or whatever it was because God had done this heart transformation. Just, it's amazing. And we just, we should be stunned that God would do that in us. I mean, I I think about Elizabeth Prada, I mean, knowing some of the stories of her background, she's told stories to me about uh, I can't remember what it was. It was maybe whiskey. She was pouring whiskey on her, on her pancake, something like this. Rum. She used to have, she used to have rum on her pancakes. Uh, and she, she says that people think she's the sweet little lady sitting on the couch uh, at discussion group. But like, that's the background, rum on her pancakes. And then God does this amazing work in Elizabeth Prada. She loves the word of God. You can't explain that other than God has done this amazing work uh, in the lives of people. It's just, it's, we should, again, exalt him for, for that. Well, too, you know, you mentioned you guys and your background, but I, I know my background, and, and you know, I just... I, Rum on waffles. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't speak of such, but, but anyway, I mean, there's no reason why I should be sitting here and, and just eating this up, uh, fascinated by the Word of God, like you mentioned the... Uh, uh, studying with, you know, your Matthew, Matthew Henry. Was it Jeremiah? Nehemiah. Nehemiah. One of those sounds like mm-hmm. one of those Mayas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maya brothers. <laughs> but you can't explain that other than because, you know, until you get into it, until God opens your heart and gives you a new heart, it's not very exciting sometimes. It's just words. But once he, once he transforms your heart, you want to do it. And it gives you great joy. Yeah, I'm probably misquoting. I think this is a hymn. I don't remember where it's from, but I may be misquoting it. But our, our duty and our joy, though opposite before, since we have seen His beauty, are joined to part no more. Our duty and our joy, though opposite before, since we have seen His beauty, are joined to part no more. Now, that, that almost overstates it. It's not that perfect in this life. In the future, it will be. But, but it, is, it is getting at something really true, that the, the desires, the longings, the, the joys, what gets us excited changes by God's grace. Not perfect, but it changes truly. And, and it's amazing to see that. In fact, I just was thinking again this week, because you mentioned this, just being completely real, we need to… We need to really be, I need to be, start with myself. I need to be consistently praying that the Lord would bring more people to Himself savingly through our church in the coming months, because there's just nothing better. There is nothing better than Caitlin Cato going from atheist to agnostic to theist to Christian. That, that's just, it doesn't get better than, than that. So, w- w- Miss Dorothy's story, just those stories are so beautiful because you see it in front of your eyes. Miss Dorothy comes, and if she's, she's watching this, she would be the first to say this. You know, when she came, she wasn't necessarily overly excited about the whole church thing, and, and she felt like everything that came from the stage was just sort of not making sense and just seemed kind of for the birds. And then, what, four or five weeks in, 
she's just sobbing after the service. Right over here, I'm sitting over there, and she's just covering her face, and she's talking about her pride, holding her back from God, and she can't stop crying. Like, what is that? And then suddenly what happens that week? She's listening to Alistair Begg's sermons. A miracle has happened, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, if you are spending your free time listening to sermons that are richly biblical, something has, tr- has changed in the, in the life there, and, and it's so evident in her life. So we just need to be praying passionately. I need to be praying more consistently that in the, in the next six months, wouldn't it be great to see a few more of those? That, that would be awesome to have a few more stories in the midst of COVID and all the craziness. To see some people come to know the Lord savingly would be beautiful, just absolutely wonderful. Can we get technical for a minute? We've got, we've got almost 13 minutes left. You're like, it's 12, Mark. Okay, 12 minutes left. Um, we, we, let's, let's get technical for a minute here. Would you turn with me to Jeremiah 31? And I'm going to repeat an illustration because I, I don't really have a different one. Jeremiah 31. And it really… <clears throat> Not, not, well, I shouldn't even say not to put you to sleep. Jeremiah is a fantastic book, but I don't want to put you to sleep with a, with a, a detailed summary here. But Jeremiah is dealing with, okay, you ready for, for history? So, the northern kingdom has already fallen to, starts with an A, Assyria, Assyria. in 722. And then, this is in the, this is in the late 600s, so like, think like near the year 600 leading into the 500s. And the southern kingdom, with Jerusalem as the capital, Judah, is going to fall in the year 586, 587 to Babylon. Right. A comes first, B comes second, if you want to remember that. So, Babylon destroys the southern kingdom. Jeremiah's, most of his ministry is saying, hey guys, you've got to stop sinning. And all the false prophets are telling you what you want to hear. God made a covenant with you guys. The covenant states clearly in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that if you keep rebelling against God and worshiping idols and not, not bringing true justice in a biblical sense to the world, God is going to clean house. He's going to send in a foreign army, and you're going to be destroyed, and Babylon is going to destroy the place. And they, you know, they throw Jeremiah into a cistern. Uh, they, they beat him up kind of stuff. The, the false prophets, you know what they said? Peace, peace, when there was no... Peace. Peace. They told the people what they wanted to hear. Don't be afraid of Babylon. God will protect us, even though we're breaking the covenant. God will still protect us. And Jeremiah says, no, I'm the true prophet, and I'm also the bearer of bad news. Sin leads to judgment. And they said, we don't want to hear that. Get rid of him. So Jeremiah's, much of his book is dealing with doom and gloom aspects, and then there's also the plans I have to prosper you, which are saying after 70 years, God is going to begin a, a, rec, a, a restoration process. But chapters in the midst of the doom and gloom, Chapters 30 to 33 are like this oasis in, in, in Jeremiah's desert. And he says, listen, beyond, far beyond this, days are coming that are going to be really good, and God is going to fix the problem that exists here. So, look at Jeremiah 31, and let's, let's look at… Oh, I got to start with… Uh, I got to start verse 25. This is just a great verse just to have somewhere in your house. Jeremiah 31, 25, for I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. That is beautiful. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, the days are coming. These are messianic days, declares the Lord, when I will show the house of Israel and the house of Judah. When I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beasts, and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down and to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build up uh, and to plant, declares the Lord, in those days. Now listen, verse 29, in those days, these are the days of the Messiah, they shall no longer say, 
The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Okay, you're going to remember this from the baptism sermon. Do you remember the plates? Okay, I'm just going to show this again because I don't know of another illustration at the moment. So, this right here represents political, national, religious Israel in the Old Testament, okay? And uh, you can probably tell by looking, right? So, the, the black dot, y'all remember what it represents? The, the remnant, the righteous remnant. Remember Elijah, I only am left? And the Lord says, no, Elijah, you're kind of moping right now. Uh, there's actually 7,000. 7,000 I have kept from bowing the knee to Baal. So, in Elijah's day, he thought he was the only remnant, he, a remnant of one. He said, God says, no, actually, it's a remnant of 7,000 and one. Uh, there, there's 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. But was the majority of Israel righteous? No. So, in the Old Covenant, here was the flaw with the Old Covenant, part of the flaw that the author of Hebrews is definitely, I think, talking about. There's a flaw that must be fixed. The majority of this plate is rebellious Israel. Now, how could it be that the majority of God's people could constantly worship idols? How could that be? And the answer is, you ready? Not everyone had to have genuine faith to be part of the covenant people in the Old Covenant. This is so important. How did you get into the Old Covenant? Well, if you were a Gentile, you could be like Ruth, and you could be converted as a… That, that's great. You know, uh, uh, the prostitute in Jericho, help me. Rahab, 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 yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, Rahab, they, they convert as adults. That's wonderful. Nothing wrong with that. But for most people, how do you get into the people of God in the Old Testament? Born into it. You're born into it, physical birth. And that's why the male children received the sign of the covenant, the sign of circumcision when they were a week old, essentially. And so, you get this. You had boys and girls. They were growing up. The boys had the sign of the covenant, and they were actually part of the covenant people. They were in covenant relationship nationally with God, but most of them did not have faith. Now, do you see the problem? So, the majority of the time, Israel is in constant rebellion, right? And if, if you haven't noticed that, just go back and flip to any page of the Old Testament, and I'll tell you what's happening. Israel's rebellion. <laughs> rebellion, okay, just can almost guarantee it. There's a few moments of, of, of good times, and then you read Judges, and you're like, this whole thing needs to be shut down. This is bad. So, um, th that's what's going on. So, you can see the problem. God, if He keeps His people like this, in this kind of framework, the people will always be primarily adulterous spiritually, right? It's just not going to be fixed. So, God says, I got, I got a solution. I'm going to turn the whole covenant people into the black dot, all right? I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to change the way I, 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 I'm going to change the covenant, and what's going to happen is this. I've got a microphone, so I've got one hand. The way you get into this covenant is by physical birth, and so you receive the sign of the covenant upon physical birth. Yes, this is an anti-infant baptism point. I don't, know, I don't know how else to make it, and I love Presbyterians. It used to be one. Okay, point number two. I hope a lot of Presbyterians are watching right now. Point number two, God says, I'm going to fix the problem. Now, <clears throat> um, again, I love Presbyterians, but I'm going to say a critical thing about Presbyterian theology, so just brace, I'm going to brace myself. Here we go. So, in Presbyterian theology with infant baptism, no Presbyterian worth their salt would say that infant baptism saves the child. Nobody… The Roman Catholic Church teaches a form of that which is 
frankly, heretical. I'm being honest there. But the, 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 the Presbyterian church does not believe that. But what they believe is you do in some sense become part of the people of God, even though you're not yet born again, by receiving that sign and by entering into this, to this, uh, this fellowship. And because they see a, a very close connection between the church and Israel. They see it as being very similar. So the covenant sign in the old covenant is given to two kinds of people, adult converts Right? That's why Abraham was circumcised as an adult and his men as an adult. Adult converts receive the sign and babies, right? In the new covenant, the Presbyterian argument is that the covenant sign, which is now baptism, is given to adult converts, like if you didn't grow up Christian, and to babies. Now, do you see how there's… you can see the connection there. And while there's much that I understand there, uh, what, what, what Hebrews is getting at is this. That is to perpetuate the problem with the Old Covenant. If you're bringing people in at the, at the baby stage, do you see that you're continuing the problem? You're bringing people into the covenant relationship in some sense, even though they're not believers yet? That's the very thing that we're trying to fix here, we, we, right? So, in the New Covenant, you receive the covenant sign not upon physical birth, but upon spiritual rebirth. You are, you are, no one is born into the new covenant. You were born into the old covenant. Abra Isaac was born into it. Jacob was born into it. The 12 sons were born into this covenant. Whether they ever believed in God or not, they were born into it. In this covenant, you're not born into it. You're born again into it. So you receive the covenant sign upon spiritual rebirth, not upon physical birth. Now, the reason why that matters is because that fixed the problem. That fixes the problem. This allows unbelievers in the covenant group. Babies who may, or may who, babies who may never become Christians, right, in the Old Covenant, which leads to a lot of non-Christians in the covenant people, which keeps the covenant people in perpetual rebellion. In the New Covenant, God only gives the New Covenant to believers. Doesn't that fix the problem? So, so look here at Hebrews, I mean, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. It's straight out of the Old Testament. I'll read it again. We're almost out of time. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. broke. Think white plate here. They broke this covenant, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put the law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Listen to verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying what? Know the Lord. Know the Lord. Why? For they shall… All know me. Do you see the black plate? How many people in this plate are believers? All of them. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So this covenant fixes the problem because everyone in the new covenant is a genuine Christian. And, and I've, I've heard, again, I love my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, and I have lots of great friends who are obviously Presbyterian, and some of my favorite authors are Presbyterian. I've had Presbyterians who I respect say back to me, but you guys sometimes baptize non-Christians too. And, and probably you, you, some churches have to, have to remove members because they prove themselves to not be Christians, so you do the same thing. And, and, as, and as graciously as I possibly can, I say this, yes, but in principle, we never knowingly 
give the covenant sign to an unbeliever. You knowingly give the sign to an unbeliever. See, of course, when we do a baptism, we think the person's a Christian. That's the whole reason we do a baptism. We hear their profession of faith. We look for fruit. We hear about the transformation. Could they be lying to me? To us, yes. Could, could their baptism be a complete fraud, or could they even be self-deceived? Yes. And if that proves to be the case, and they fall, they, they, they go into unrepentant sin, then we would then re- eventually, you know, there's, there's removal from membership. That's all true. Uh, by God's grace, we have not had to do that yet as a church, which I praise God for. But, but the point is, we would never knowingly give the covenant sign to an unbeliever, and we would never knowingly let an unbeliever be a member of the church. Do you see? And so, that's the difference. What, what we are doing is, in principle, we never give the sign to an unbeliever, and in principle, we we only allow uh, believers to, to, be, to, to receive the covenant sign and communion and be part of the local body. So, do you see how this fixes the problem uh, with the old covenant? Now God has a people that is actually going to be not perfect yet, but faithful, right? True believers are not perfect, but they are ultimately faithful in the end, right? They still truly love the Lord. And so, that is one of the major things that the new uh, covenant will do. And I, I know I'm, I'm almost over time. I'm sorry. I'll give you one more thing. L- look back at verse 29 of Jeremiah 31 and listen to how the covenant is restructured. This is important. In those days, they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. You say, I've never said that in my life. Uh, who's saying that? Do you, do you get this saying? So, here's, here's, the, here's what's going on. Did every generation of this right here with mostly unfaithful people, did every generation equally get exiled and punished by Assyria and Babylon? No. No. What happened was God would wait for centuries, right, as Israel relentlessly rebelled, right? For centuries, He would say, I have held out my arms all day long to a disobedient and rebellious people. I'm waiting for you to come back. Please come back. And they don't. And after 600 years, He finally punishes the children for the father's sins. It's also the children's sins too, right? But you get what I'm saying? The fathers ate sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. All these fathers' generations have sinned, and the children, the the, the most recent generation, gets the Babylonian punishment, you see? Because God is treating them as a corporate entity, right? And He says, listen, in the new covenant, it's not going to work that way. Everyone is going to be accountable to God for their own sins, not for the corporate. So, look at verse 30. This is in the new covenant. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. So, so God says, listen, I am now going to deal with you on an individual basis, and you will either be saved by your faith and enter the new covenant, or you will be cursed because of your rebellion and, and, and unbelief, and you will face judgment and be not part of the covenant. But now it, it's, not a, it's not about whether you're part of a group. It's about the individual response to the gospel. Some closing thoughts here. You know, I think it's, it's, it's and I'm, th- I'm, I'm talking about people that profess to be Christians or grow up, let's just say, in a, quote, Christian home. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's difficult sometimes to know. I mean, I understand our discussion about, you know, a heart change and regeneration and that type thing. But there are a lot of um, churches that do baptize, other than Presbyterian infants, Mm -hmm. uh, that teach baptismal regeneration. uh, And these these people grow up and sometimes are part of those churches. And and I'm just, you know, sometimes I wonder, you know, if if they are indeed regenerated Mm -hmm. uh, because of their lack of fruit or so. So it's, it's a struggle sometimes.
You want to close us in prayer? Yep. Sure. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we're just uh, thankful for uh, a Tuesday night where we can gather here on a, a sort of rainy, stormy night, at least when we got here. And just thank you for all the people who come tonight to, to listen, and thank you for, for Zach Petty and his willingness to come, uh, even though he's Lord willing, getting married this Saturday on a busy week. Thank you for his, his service of, of all of us, and thank you for the ability we have to, to live stream uh, now. Uh, it's amazing that we can do that for people who uh, can't be here, that they can watch from home. Uh, and just uh, thank you for this incredible book of Hebrews, uh, and uh, just thank you for the, the glory of Jesus that is so clearly revealed on the pages of the book of Hebrews. Uh, thank you that we do have such a priest, such a high priest in the, in the person of Jesus and that he has sat down at the right hand of the, the throne of majesty. Uh, Father, I pray that that would be a huge encouragement to us today that uh, his sitting down uh, signals that the, the, the cry of the cross, it is finished. It, it's paid in full. Our sins have been paid in full. I pray that we would rejoice in the provision of the gospel and in the provision of Jesus and his sacrifice for us. And I pray that we would be encouraged to pray, as Fred has said, that he has just wanted to pray more studying Hebrews. And I pray that that would be true of all of us, that we would want to boldly come to the throne of grace to, to, to receive mercy and help in times of need. Help us to be people of prayer. And just thank you for the work you've done in, in our hearts to, to remove the, the heart of stone and give given us a heart of, of flesh that, that loves your word. Uh, help us to never get over your, your goodness and your grace in, in saving us and opening up our eyes to the beauty of Jesus. And, and as Mark said uh, earlier, I just pray that we would uh, long for more people to come to Saving Faith, that you would use the people in this church, the ministry of North Avenue Church, to bring more and more people to saving faith, Father. It's been amazing to see the conversion so far, and I pray that that would just continue, that more and more people would come to know you uh, in a saving way, and uh, that would be just a joy uh, for, for us to see that happen. We just ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And just um, thank you all for, for the help tonight. Just as we I know with COVID, we don't know exactly what everything is going to look like, but with school coming back to some capacity and with college students in town, um, we just want to be cognizant of visitors who are going to be here in the coming Sundays and just to, to try to reach out and get to know someone. Shake, oh, I guess you can't shake someone's hand. Wow. <laughs> Socially distance and stare at someone from far away and say, hello, nice to meet you. But um, as, as people are visiting, I'm just assuming over the next few months, we'll, I'm sure we'll have some visitors around. And so uh, we already, I mean, our church does as well, but just reaching out and getting to know someone we don't know and, and, uh, and inviting them into the community would be, would be huge. So thank you all for the ways that you all have done that in the past. All right. We are done. Thank you all. Thank you, Zach. Zach wants to crawl under the desk. Zach, turn my mic off. Did you turn my mic off? Thank you, Zach. <laughs>